Welcome to Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and in each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a foreign admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that'll help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Cindy Minigaz and Scott Greenemeyer from SmartTrack College Funding about how students and families can maximize their financial aid during the college admissions process. Hello, how are you both today? Doing great. Very well. Thanks so much, Ellen, for having us. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about this episode. Just to start off, Cindy, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself, about your work with SmartTrack? My pleasure. So again, my name is Cindy Menegas. I am the National Program Director at SmartTrack College Funding. So in that work, I run a program called our High School Initiative, where in high schools, public, private, parochial schools all over the country, as well as partnering with folks in your space, people who work in tutoring, test prep, college planning, et cetera, to bring resources and education to parents on the subject of better paying for college. Personally, I am the mom of identical twin boys who graduated from college in May of 2020. But when they were between ninth and 10th grade, we attended a college funding workshop from the folks at SmartTrack. And it wasn't an overstatement to say that it was game changing for us. You know, it really put us on a path to understand how we were going to cover our college costs, what we could afford, what uh, resources we could draw upon. And it really reduced the level of stress in our household. It made such a tremendous difference that I started telling everyone I knew about the whole idea of planning ahead for how to pay for college. And ultimately, I, I said to the man who's now the CEO of of SmartTrack, you know, you should hire me because I'm really enthusiastic about this whole subject and I see how much it helps. So that was about five, six years ago, and it's been my pleasure to be with SmartTrack since then. It's always great for people in this space to be parents too, because then you really know the challenges and the struggles Mm -hmm. and the joys up front. And Scott, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your work? I'm the co-founder and CFO of SmartTrack College Funding. Started my career initially as a a CPA, worked in public accounting for a number of years, then as a corporate CFO for a number of years, and then about 20 years ago, just stumbled into college funding, was helping a friend of a friend write a business plan, and somehow fell in love with the business plan and quit my CFO job and co-founded the company, and I've been doing uh, college funding ever since. In terms of my primary role in working with clients would be serving as a college funding advisor. And basically really what that means is looking at their financial situation, doing whatever I can to make the process of paying for college as painless as it can possibly be. And even though the goal is exactly the same for every client, because every family situation is so unique, you know, how much income do they make? How do they earn their income? You know, what kind of assets do they have? How many kids do they have put through college? What are their, you know, cash flow look like? Well, how what's the quality of the students and the kids? What kind of colleges are they looking at? So there's so many different factors. So there's not one strategy that works for every family. So even though the goal is the same, how we get there can look dramatically different from, from family to family. But 
kind of the main you know, concerns that we hear from most families we work with is, how am I gonna pay for this? Is there any way I can pay less? You know, what's the impact on retirement by the time I'm done paying for college? So that's really our main focus is kind of around those three common concerns. And we're trying to you know, do everything we can to what we call maximize the use of other people's money, as much help as they can from the colleges or sometimes even tax strategies can come into play. And then also maximize their own resources by making sure they're paying their share in the most cost-effective, tax-efficient, strategic way possible. I'm a college graduate myself, and I couldn't even fully tell you what the financial aid process entails, what it even means. So at the most basic level, what encompasses financial aid at American schools? There are several different types of financial aid. When you think of financial aid, what does that mean? Well, within the schools, there are gift aid, which is what is referred to when you think of grants, scholarships, awards. Those are all ways of receiving gift aid. That's money you don't have to pay back. That's free money. So that's the kind of financial aid that we love and want to maximize. And it comes from a couple of different sources, federal and state governments, as well as the colleges and universities themselves. And it can be provided based on a couple of things. It can either be need-based, based on the family's financial need, or and or in conjunction with the student's merits. So that's when the schools can provide free money to that student to help incentivize them to say yes, to be admitted to their university. And they can provide financial aid based on the child's grades and scores, maybe it's academic merit, in which case it makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of making sure that students getting the best grades and standardized test scores that they can. So any investment you're making in improving those grades and scores can really pay off in terms of merit aid. For things like leadership skills, athletic ability, athletic scholarships fall under the merit category as well. So you really want to maximize your gift aid, whether it's based on financial need or your students' merits. And then you have what's called self-help. So self-help financial aid is what most people think of. It's the government offering you loans. So the federal government will provide loans for students directly or for parents of students to help them cover their college costs. And it's considered financial aid, even though you have to pay that money back with interest. And then lastly, part of self-help is work study, which is a program through the federal government where the student, if they receive work study in their financial aid package, can get a job on campus and the federal government pays the wages as part of their financial aid package. So between gift aid, which is that free money, and self-help, which is primarily loans or working towards receiving some of that money, that's primarily the kinds of financial aid that you'll see from the schools. And then one caveat, there is another type of financial aid that a lot of families think about, and that is private scholarships. So that lives outside of this system. And I wanna mention it because I think it gets a lot more attention than is really warranted given how much money is in that system. Private scholarships only make up 4% of the total financial aid in this system. So if you're thinking, hey, we're just gonna augment what we can afford with a bunch of private scholarships, I just want folks to manage their expectations because they are very competitive. It will take your kid a lot to you know, have the legwork to chase these down and qualify for them and win them. So ultimately, it's great if you can 
earn private scholarships, but as a strategy for how to consistently cover your college costs, you might find that they come up short. And regarding gift aid and then that self-help, which includes that government help, when do private loans come in? That's another part of this. That's a smart thing for you to bring up. So the federal government within this system we've just described will offer parent and student loans, but some families either don't submit a financial aid application, so they won't be offered those low interest rate federal loans, and they'll have to rely on the private sector. Or if there's a gap between what they can borrow from the government and what they need, they can pursue those resources in the private sector. So there are lots of private lenders out there very happy to loan families money for college. There's more flexibility there. They do variable rate loans and different terms. The interest rates can be dependent on the family's credit score. In the federal system, it's a, a flat interest rate for everyone, uh, a fixed rate, and everyone gets that, that same rate. So there are the two systems. There's more flexibility in the private sector, but it may cost you more. I'm interested in the interplay between school ranking and financial aid. So my understanding has been that the Ivy Leagues do not offer merit scholarships, whereas schools that are kind of like in the top 10 to top 20, like, for example, I went to the University of Southern California, they do offer a decent amount of merit scholarships because they're kind of trying to attract those students away from those slightly higher ranking schools by giving very generous packages. That's correct. Because when it comes down to merit aid, it's important to remember really what merit aid is and why colleges award it. And, and really at its core, merit aid is nothing more than a discount off of the tuition bill that colleges are going to use to track the students that they want at their college and to compete against other schools. So because of that competition level, the top schools, Harvard is the first one that started this. All the Ivy Leagues, a lot of your Ivy League equivalents have followed suit. They already have the best students applying to their school. They don't have to try to entice a student to compete against another college. And so in that case, they rely strictly on need-based aid. Now, those schools that are no merit, 100% need-based aid, like you said, are obviously going to be the highest ranked academic schools. And they're also the most generous schools with need-based aid. So for some families, even though they don't give merit aid, depending on you know, their financials, they can still be extremely cost-effective options. And you know, for some, some families, you know, if their kids can get into Harvard, they'll go cheaper than they can go to the in-state public schools. But then you know, for other families, it's a little more challenging if their income's at a very high level where they can't qualify for need-based aid and there is no you know, merit aid option available. So you'd recommend parents of students who are academically elite that they kind of look past sticker price and consider that some of these schools that do have those like $60,000, $70,000 tuition prices might end up being cheaper in the end because of their students' academic prowess? Yeah, I think, you know, the kids that are academically strong enough that can get into a, you know, one of those need-only schools like a Harvard or a Princeton that means that their academics are strong enough that they're going to be positioning in at a very high level at that next tier of schools, which are also very good schools, but they'll you know, give merit aid and the kids will be positioned to qualify for that merit aid. So it really comes down to it. It's a family decision. What's the most important? Is it the brand name of the school and you're willing to pay that, that full price? Or if, if you're not 
quite as concerned about the brand name of the school and you do want a discount off the bill, then you, you go to that next, next level of schools where the kids can still qualify for merit aid. That transitions really well into my next question. How do colleges actually determine financial aid eligibility? So like Cindy had talked about, there's two systems. There's the need-based system and the merit-based system. So let's start with the need-based system. So there's every college has a published cost of attendance number, and that includes tuition, room and board, and allowance for books, and then also some soft costs, personal transportation expenses, usually maybe around $3,000 of additional costs added on. Then when families file the financial aid forms, which would be the FAFSA, which is the federal form, which virtually every college is gonna require, some of the higher ranked private schools also require a second financial aid form called the CSS profile form. So when those forms are completed, they're gonna use those forms to determine what's called an expected family contribution, or the acronym is EFC. And then for need-based aid, the formula is cost of attendance minus EFC equals need. So, you know, if it's a $75,000 school and a family has a, you know, EFC of $40,000, that means they're qualifying for $35,000 of need-based aid. Then every school has a financial aid office. That's the first calculation they're going to run. And then they're going to determine how they're going to go about in meeting that, that family's need. And the financial aid office is authorized to award money on behalf of the federal government, the state government, if there's any applicable programs in their state, and then what's called institutional money, the money that's going to come directly from that college's budget. And, and, and the institutional money you know, does end up becoming the biggest component. And not all colleges have the same level of resources, the same financial aid policies. So some colleges you know, are just by nature going to be more generous in meeting need than other schools. So a family could have two schools with virtually the same cost of attendance. Their EFC is the same at each school, but their net costs could be dramatically different because one college did a much better job of meeting their, their need-based aid than others. And then again, like, like Cindy mentioned, in that need-based category, there's three main categories. Gift aid, which is you know, grants, need-based grants. Federal loan in the student's name is considered part of the need-based package. Or then federal work study where a student gets a job. And you know, a lot of the colleges, the more generous colleges of the aid they give, you know, 85 to 95 or sometimes even approaching 100% of it is actually the gift aid, the free money. Then, then the other type of aid would be the merit aid. And, and the eligibility for that really comes down more to, well, number one, it needs to be a school that actually gives merit aid, because as we talked about, not all schools do. But if it's a school that gives merit aid, then it's important that the student is positioned academically to be able to qualify for that merit aid, which as a general rule typically means being in the top 25% academically. So most schools will publish what they call the middle 50% on SAT, ACT tests. So if the students are above that middle 50% range, meaning they're in the top 25%, that's typically a good place to be if you're trying to get merit aid from a school. That's similar for us. We obviously have target schools, safety schools, reach schools, and those are also based on the middle 50% and then the right. 
exactly. top and the bottom. Do you guys have any similar terminology of like what's a safety school for financial aid or? I mean, we use the same terminology. Certainly, if it's a safety school and you're in the top 25, it means you're also going to be positioned well for, for academic merit aid. One of the tools that we provide in the resources that, that we provide for families has a resource that ranks schools based on their historical generosity. And so we rank them on a green, yellow, red scale, which is similar to reach target safety. And it helps families balance their list, not only for admission, but also for affordability, if that's a concern. Now, what misconceptions do you often encounter when it comes to financial aid? Well, we see a lot of them. I think for middle and upper middle income families in particular, they assume that the financial aid system is designed for lower income families. And if that doesn't apply to them, then they don't engage in the process at all. And that can be a very costly misconception. The reality is that the financial aid system, as we've been discussing it, it's actually much broader and much more inclusive than I think a lot of families realize. So that's a really important misconception that you really do want to engage in this system because there may very well be money in it for you. Another misconception is that families believe that need-based aid is all about loans. And that's not necessarily true. As, as Scott was talking about, there are schools that will provide gift aid to help meet your need. And then, as Scott mentioned, I'll just reiterate that colleges are not all created equally. And one of the ways that we define a generous school, it's really about how they meet your need. And they will meet them differently. Some will fill your need with a big package of loans. Others will fill that need with a combination of gift aid and work study and, and other resources. So when we think about college generosity, it's not just about the loans. It really is about how that school is going to interact. I think there's one other thing I would like to talk about. I guess this is a good place as any to discuss it. Scott talked about your EFC calculation, your expected family contribution. And this is a big misconception here because when families run their numbers and they get this estimation for what they're going to be expected to pay their share of their costs, it's often really high and they think that there's nothing they can do about it. They're just, you know, going to have their back against a wall. I have never met a middle or upper middle income family who got their EFC calculation and said, oh, well, yeah, that's about right. That's what we can afford to pay for college. No problem. No, it's more like, are you kidding me? This is what they think we can afford to pay. This is ridiculous. Why is it so high? And the reason is that just the way the family has their financial life organized, their taxes, their assets, their income, their property, everything that makes up their financial life and positioning, those are the things that can impact the expected family contribution. And the reality is a lot of those things parents have some level of control over. They do have some agency here. And that's a really important Thing to understand is that if you have an inflated EFC calculation, you want to bring it down to its most, you know, to its lowest, uh, most natural, fair, legal, legitimate, ethical level so that you qualify for more need-based aid. And if you're applying to schools likely to be generous with your family, guess what? College is going to be considerably more affordable for you, even for middle and upper middle income families. 
obviously, you know, scholarships, a full ride, that would be ideal, but are there any other pros and cons for the different financial aid options that you might want to discuss? Some of it we've mentioned a little bit already. Um, you know, not all colleges give both types of aid. Some colleges, as we've talked about, don't give merit aid anymore. So families need to, you know, when they're going through the process, they need to have a clear understanding of what type of aid they're going to qualify for so they can be pursuing colleges that are generous with the type of aid, you know, they're qualifying for. You know, for a family that's not qualifying for need-based aid, it's not helpful to them that Harvard is, you know, the most generous school with need-based aid. You know, that's just not helpful. They need to know the aid that they're pursuing is, is what's available at the college. Uh, some other things, you know, I would say some colleges in their aid packages, you know, will put like the parent plus loans in there to try to make it look like they're meeting more of the family's need. And, and that's just, you know, they can get that plus loan on their own. They don't need the college to award it to them. It's, it's really misleading. So when they're, when they're looking at the financial aid they're receiving, they need to be very careful, you know, not considering all these different loan options as aid. And they really, you know, want to be looking more at the free money that's going to be available to them. Now, getting into more of a kind of practical line of questioning, when should families actually start planning for their student financial aid future? I am so glad you asked that question, Ellen, because it is a critical piece of this puzzle. Timing is everything. So obviously, it's important to start saving for college if you can. You know, the minute you find out you're pregnant, great. For a lot of families, that's really challenging. What we do is called late stage college funding planning. What that means is it's optimal to begin thinking about how you're going to cover your college costs while your children are still in ninth grade, 10th grade, early 11th grade. Um, so even though the student isn't beginning in earnest their college planning until maybe a little later, maybe you know their junior year, they start thinking about college and where they want to attend. For parents, it's incredibly important that they start this process earlier. And the reason is this, that when their children are applying for college in fall of senior year and you are submitting your financial aid applications at that same time, the schools and the government are going to be assessing you in large part based on your tax return from what's called your prior prior year. That means your tax year from two years before your kid is actually going off to college. So the financial decisions that you make that are reflected on your tax return two years in advance can either help you if you've organized your financials accordingly or potentially bite you in the rear end if you haven't. And so it's really incredibly important that you begin thinking about this stuff. So for example, if you have a student who will graduate high school in 2024, that would make them currently a 10th grader, the tax return that you will be assessed upon as your base year is 2022. So all of the financial decisions that are gonna come up on your tax return in 2022, even though your kid's not going to school for two more years, so that's why we think it's so important that families begin this process earlier than they might think. For parents who've already passed that checkpoint, is there anything they can kind of do retroactively to mitigate some of that damage, especially, you know, if it was, I'm thinking like an extraordinary year, like the pandemic where, you know, the markets have just like gone insane. 
Yeah, and again, um, you know what Cindy was saying. You know, the optimal time is before January first of that junior year, because then all the options will be open to you. Now, it doesn't mean that you know a family if the kids are already juniors, everything is lost. There's nothing that can be done. It doesn't mean that. It just means there may be a few strategies that are are going to be a little more difficult because of the timing, but. But it doesn't mean all hope is lost and they shouldn't even try. And, and then in that situation, like you're talking about where, you know, families' financials can change dramatically over that two-year period from their, that prior, prior year to when they start their college, there's a thing called a special circumstance appeal. So, so if your financial aid or your financial system is no longer accurately represented by those financial aid forms, then you can file what's called a special circumstance appeal. And, and those, those um, certainly have high chances of, of being successful or helping. I'd like to add one last piece to that conversation. And that is that your tax return is one component of how they will assess your overall financial positioning. The other thing is important to notice what your assets look like the day you submit your financial aid applications. So even if you're feeling like, oh, wow, we're late to this party and that tax year has come and gone, there are still things you can do considering how your financial life is structured and how you are going to use your own resources to cover your share of costs. How one pays for college can really impact how much one pays. And so you really want to make sure that you're using your resources that you do have in the most advantageous tax effective, cost efficient way that you can. So it's not just about your tax return. So understand that there's more that goes into it than just that. Hopefully that gives you some, some peace. You know, you've got other things that you can also look at than your tax return. What decisions and tasks should parents of high school students be doing? I think um, kind of boiled down to a couple simple steps. Step one would be what we'll call financial positioning, which ideally would be done like we've talked about before January 1st of the junior year. You know, it's kind of one deadline. The other deadline is certainly before, before you file the financial aid form. So you wanna have an analysis done of your financial situation to see if there's any opportunities to lower your expected family contribution so you can qualify for, for more need-based aid. So step one, financial positioning. Step two then is scrubbing the college list for financial fit. I mean, obviously that college list, the starting point, it has to be a good fit for the student. That's always gonna be the, you know, the first step. But for many families, there's a lot of schools that can be good fits for the student. And some of them are gonna be better fits for the family's financial or for the parents than, than others. So, so Scrub that college list, making sure it includes schools that are going to be a good financial fit for the parents. And then the third step would be building a comprehensive college payment plan. You know, first step, like we talked about, maximizing use of other people's money, which comes through the financial positioning, lowering your expected family contribution, applying to the right schools. But then most families, no matter what you do, they're still going to have some money that they're, they're going to be responsible for. So they need to have a plan in place to know how they're going to pay for, for that cost. And that's critically important for families that have 
two, three, four kids to put through college. We'll see a lot of times where, you know, when families start the process without a clear cut plan, they'll kind of overspend on the first students at the expense of, of the younger students. And, and that puts parents in a very bad position when that happens. So our general rule is you need to have a plan in place for your entire family before you spend the first dollar on, on your first student. So step one, financial positioning. Step two, scrubbing that college list. Step three, having that comprehensive college plan. And then I would say step four is making sure that, that you accurately complete all of the, the financial aid paperwork. You know, we, we still continue to see families that, you know, make, make a lot of mistakes on the financial aid forms that end up costing them money. Are there any other mistakes that we haven't covered yet that you see parents making? We've covered this, but just to reiterate, I talk to a lot of families in the fall of their kid's senior year, and they're kicking themselves because they didn't begin this process sooner. So I would say the big mistake is waiting until your kids are seniors and you're filling out those financial aid forms to start thinking about how you're going to cover your college costs. That's the biggest mistake I see. Not taking steps to reduce those EFCs if they are inflated uh, will definitely cost a family significant amounts of money. And not understanding, as Scott's been talking about, how a school's generosity will impact how much you pay. So understanding your college list, that's huge. Well, and I would add one thing. I would say for, for some families, there's, there's certain family dynamics that can cause complications that lend for more mistakes to make. For example, see a lot of mistakes being made for, for parents that are, are, are divorced, that, that don't understand how the financial aid rules work for, for divorced families. Um, for families that are, are maybe business owners, there, there's some really good opportunities there on the tax side that most families are not taking advantage of, don't understand um, for families that have rental properties. So, so certain family dynamics can lend themselves to more mistakes being made. So ideally, you know, the parents have started this work, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, they've met with you guys, they've done this work, they're good to go. Now their students are seniors, their students are applying, they're doing their college applications. What are the parents doing? What, are, what is the timeline for parents of seniors? Yeah, so that senior year of high school, there's a lot going on, a lot going on that year. It really starts probably in about September of the senior year and really doesn't end until about June of the senior year. So just kind of, you know, recapping the highlights, the, the first step is getting ready to file the FAFSA form. Uh, they have to create what's called an FSA ID, which is a, like kind of an online password the student needs one, and then one parent, not both parents, you just have to have one parent, one student. So, you know, in September, you create that FSA ID. Then in October, you're going to need to file your FAFSA and the CSS profile form if you have schools that require that. Then there are also some schools that have what are called institutional forms. So these are forms that only apply, you know, are only applicable to the one school. So, there could be you know, FAFSA profile and then individual forms for individual schools. Those are probably gonna be filled out in you know, November of that senior year of high school. Any colleges that take the CSS profile want supporting documents, um, tax returns, W-2. So there's a process called IDOC where you can securely upload 
those into a centralized site and that gets distributed to the colleges. So in November, they're gonna be you know, completing that IDOT. Then depending on how they applied and what colleges, you know, typically, you know, maybe by the end of December or not until March, like I said, it just depends on which application process they used in the colleges, but they'll start hearing back from the colleges and they'll get what's called a financial aid award letter. So they need, at that point, you need to very carefully review those financial aid award letters to make sure that you, you know, receive the aid that, that you're expecting from each school based on their you know, historical statistics. Um, many times there can be a, a, a possibility for an appeal that could either be a, you know, a special circumstance appeal, what we'll call under awarding, the colleges didn't give you what their statistics say that they normally should, or a competitive appeal. You, know, you wanna to go to school A, but school B is a competing school, gave you a better financial aid award. Sometimes you can leverage that award against school A to get them to match that award. So kind of that March, April timeframe, you're, you're reviewing your financial aid award letters, deciding if you're gonna do a financial aid appeal. If you are, that's gonna happen during the month of April. Then May 1st is the date that you have to make a decision and decide you know, which school you're gonna to attend to, fill out the paperwork, you know, secure your seat at the college, put down the deposit for, for your housing. And then once that's done, most families are probably participating in, in some federal loans, at least the federal loan in the student name. So then in May is when you would go on to the whatever school of choice, they open up a section on their website where students can go in and, and secure those federal loans. And so there's really kind of stuff going on throughout the process. I did kind of miss one step in January, February timeframe, um, about a third of the financial aid forms get, get picked for what's called verification. So if you're picked for verification, you're gonna to have to complete the verification process. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty interactive, lot, lots of steps from September through June of that senior year of high school. And are there any practical mistakes when parents are filling out the FAFSA, the CSS profile, when they're making their appeals? You know, for college applications, we like look at little things like, you know, you fill in your demographics wrong, you use the wrong college name in your supplemental essay. So do you kind of see those kind of mistakes sometimes? Yeah, um, absolutely. I would say like on the FAFSA form, the biggest mistake families make where, where it's going to, the, the one that can have the biggest impact on, on on their cost is, is the section on assets, when they're asking for the family's assets. If, if you look carefully at the instructions, the instructions you know, say, do not include your home equity, do not include retirement accounts, do not include annuities or cash value life insurance. But we, we see other families, you know, if they ask us to review their forms or maybe people have come to us you know, after they've even already completed the process, We'll see where they included assets in there that they didn't need to include because they you know, didn't understand or didn't read the directions good enough. Not reporting assets correctly is probably the, the biggest one that, that can really make mistakes for families. And are they ever able to kind of go back and fix that or is that kind of set in once they do it? No, if they realize they made a mistake, they, they can go back and correct the FAFSA at any time and, and um, 
but a lot of, you know, a lot of families don't never even realize they made a mistake. Do either of you have any other insight or advice, words of wisdom to share with families or students? I, I think just to, to reiterate the points that we think are really important about planning ahead for how you're gonna pay for college. When you do that, it's going to help you maximize both your merit and need-based aid eligibility. And if you learn how to leverage what you bring to the table with what's available from the government and the colleges themselves, it's going to reduce how much money you have to borrow. And that's probably one of the most expensive ways we see families end up paying more for college than they have to is through the costs of borrowing. So you really want to shrink that as much as possible. So that's really, really important. Needless to say, every family is going to have a unique financial situation. So I wish we could tell you, hey, okay, there's, you know, if everyone just does A, B, and C, you're all going to be golden. It doesn't work that way. You have to understand what's going on in your specific situation so that you can make educated decisions about the health and financial well-being of your family. So I think that's really important to, to remember. The other thing I'll say is we recommend that most families go ahead and submit that FAFSA when the time comes. A lot of folks think, okay, well, we're not going to qualify for need-based aid, so why should I bother? Well, if you want to qualify for those low interest rate federal loans, you need to be in the system. You have to have submitted that FAFSA, as well as some merit awards and private scholarship dollars. You won't have access to those if you're not in that system, if you haven't submitted that FAFSA. So it's likely a good idea that you go ahead and engage in this system. And then secondly, make sure that you've organized your financials accordingly before you do so. I, I think it's comparable to you know, your tax return. You wouldn't submit your tax return before taking every legitimate, fair, legal tax deduction you had coming to you. You would pay more in taxes, right? The same is true here. You really want to organize your financials to be as favorable as possible. So you're assessed by these financial aid offices and the governments as favorably as possible. And, and that's really important to do. And then lastly, just make sure you're making decisions about where your child should apply based on fit of the school for your child, obviously, but also on the school's generosity and not just on the sticker price. You know, don't be frightened away because the school has that giant sticker price if in fact it's a school that's a good fit and could likely be a generous one. All right. And a, a couple of things that, that, that I would add, and I was actually going to say the same thing that Cindy just finished there. Don't make decisions based on the list price of the school. You have to look at how that, how your situation fits into that college and have a realistic calculation of what your net cost is going to be. Don't make decisions based on, on that list price. And also understanding as we've talked about, every family situation is different. So different types of colleges are going to work out better. Like another, you know, like just practical example, if you're, if you're a low income, low asset where your expected family contribution is very small and you can qualify for a significant amount of need-based aid, probably the most expensive, worst option for you is going to be an out-of-state public school because you're going to pay out-of-state tuition, which is probably going to you know, raise the price 20 to 25,000 from an in-state public school price, but you don't get any of the advantage of the more generous financial aid availability that many of the private schools have. 
So, you know, know for, for your type of situation, which colleges. The other thing, when you're, when you're looking at college costs, one other thing to kind of be aware of is, is the four-year graduation rates for the colleges. You know, some colleges have very high four-year graduation rates where, you know, almost all the kids are graduating in four years. And if they don't, it's probably because of their own fault. They made a mistake. But some of the, you know, some of the schools in the country, very, very low four-year graduation rates where the schools are so impacted and so crowded, it's almost impossible for a student to finish in four years. And, you know, if you're comparing the cost of two colleges and one has a 90% four-year graduation rate and the other has a 10% four-year graduation rate, you probably need to, you know, compare it based on four years of cost for one and five years of cost of another in order to make, you know, the right, the right decision. And for listeners who do want assistance, how can they connect with SmartTrack? So SmartTrack College Funding has a program, and we're delighted to be working with Ingenious Prep for this. We're able to extend some really worthwhile and valuable resources to your clients and your listeners. There is a link specific to Ingenious Prep. You can create a parent account using that specific link. Please don't go out to our public-facing website and create a SmartTrack account because you won't receive the special benefits and discounts available through Ingenious Prep. So use that specific link. Parents, you'll create an account. You'll take what's called a, a quick five-minute assessment. This is answering a few basic questions. It shouldn't take you more than five minutes. Don't belabor it. We just need an overview. And once you've done that, you'll be able to schedule a complimentary college funding evaluation call with one of our expert advisors. This is where the parents can get on the phone with a SmartTrack college funding advisor for about 15 minutes or so to be able to look at where your family is in terms of your positioning. If you're poised to overpay for college, we can let you know that. If you're in great shape, you know, the advisor might tell you, hey, just stay the course. You're, you're doing great. Whatever it is that's going on in your family's financial life, the advisor will be able to have a conversation with you, give you some feedback, let you know where you are, where you could be. And then if you are in a position where we can help you considerably, we'll let you know that. We do have comprehensive college funding planning resources available. And for families through Intergenius Prep, they'll get a 30% discount on our already really reasonable rate. So that's something to consider. You can get a complimentary evaluation and then steep discounts on advanced services if that's something that is warranted for your particular family. And lastly, there are some really valuable free resources on our platform. So once you have created your account, I'll encourage you to spend as much time as you like. Go down the rabbit hole. There's a very sophisticated EFC calculator available to you, as well as some tax strategy planning that you can do. Um, there's some really cool resources there. So I encourage you to take advantage of of those opportunities. There's certainly no cost, no obligation whatsoever, but we do want to extend those resources and benefits to ingenious families. Thank you 
so much for joining us today. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into the financial aid process. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. I'll also link the smart track links we talked about and all the resources. If you have any questions or would like to press a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag Inside Admissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.